Welcome to the History Matters Podcast with Steve Blankenship and Shannon Bondrager, the podcast about history, teaching history, and why it matters. This week, we pick up with part two of our podcast, Five Books That Made Us Historians. We begin with book four. What's your uh, fourth book? Um, this is John Dominique Croissant's The Historical Jesus, The Life of a Mediterranean Jewish Peasant. Um, this is not, this is not the a The title is already very provocative. This is not a, uh, a work for a popular audience. This is a work for other scholars. Uh, and it made a huge impact on me because he is explicit. Croissant is explicit about his methodology. About, he says, well, if you're going to really tackle Jesus as a historical figure, um, you need to tell your audience up front and you need to reiterate how you're going to do this. Um, what's, what's your evidence and what weight do you place on this evidence? And he does this throughout. And it's, it, again, for a popular audience, it would probably become tiresome. But for a, a budding historian, it was fascinating mm. to watch a scholar continually remind you exactly what he's doing and how he's going to go about it, and weighing the evidence for you, and and being and being completely open about it, and saying if I'm wrong here, then this book will have to be redone. <laughs> um, I, I was stunned by it. He and he places Jesus in so many different contexts. He places him as a citizen of the Roman Empire. He places him as a, uh, a revolutionary peasant. He, uh, he locates him in the uh, Mediterranean culture of honor and shame. He locates him um, as a, uh, an apocalyptic preacher. Mm-hmm. So he, lo- he finds Jesus in a variety of contexts. And then he brings in all the secondary literature on the Mediterranean. He brings in Braudel with uh, mm-hmm. the long view, so mm-hmm. to speak. And uh, he brings in historians talking about the, the, the culture of honor and on and on and on. So you get these layers and layers of secondary uh, historical work and then his uh, the primary sources that he uses whether it's the, the, the Q source or the Gospel of Thomas or uh, uh, the, the Synoptic Gospels in the New Testament and then other sources, Roman sources and, and Greek sources. And uh, Fascinating, absolutely fascinating read. At the heart of the book is a chapter called Magic and Meal. Hmm. And he says this is the this is the, the Jesus project. That he is roaming the countryside and he's telling his disciples that when you enter a village, uh, you find where you can do good, where you can help. If someone is sick, you can put your hands on them and pray. That you are bringing God into this village. And in exchange, you have a place to rest something to eat, something to drink, and then you go on from there. And he's literally moving from home to home, village to village, through Galilee, uh, bringing the kingdom of God to these people. And I was struck by the, the utter practicality of it as a project, as something that this man does. He's sort of this peripatetic preacher moving about the countryside, but he has a method, mm-hmm. and he has a message for his host in exchange uh, for room and board. He mm. brings the kingdom of God into their home. 
And I was uh, very moved by it. I thought it was a powerful argument. I thought that uh, the way he went about it was utterly persuasive. And uh, I don't know, the, pro the problem with a book like this is that no matter how big of an impact it may have on me, I don't know that many people I'd recommend it to. <laughs> now, you might get something out of it. Yeah, have I haven't read it. I'd love it. You have that a background in, in this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. I found it absolutely fascinating. Mm. That sounds fascinating. I might have to give it a read because I haven't read it. But Yeah, it's, it's, it's worth it. That's worth it. Well, um, similarly, I think, very differently, but similarly in the way that you were shaped by this book in the way that the historian discusses and shows you and how transparent he is with the work of history. Uh, my fourth book uh, is, um, is by Emmanuel uh, Leroy Ladurie, Montaillou. Yes. Which, uh, when I first encountered this book, is kind of weird to begin reading it. But what he does with this book, so fascinating, is he creates this, he recreates this village, uh, Montaillou, uh, in the medieval time period with limited sources. But he, he, he similarly keeps talking about, here's kind of what I'm doing with these sources, and here's how we know what happened. But he's, he's able to create what's called a micro-history. Yes. And, um, and in such detail that it it's almost becomes like a, I don't want to say soap opera in the sense of, of fictionalized, but in that he's able to create converse, the, the, the gists of conversations and debates and things that are going on from all these collected uh, sources to where it's just this narrative that has so much drama. I never believed that historians could write dramatically. I thought it had to be dry. But what he showed me is that no, drama is, uh, dramatic writing is in the sources and historians should not be afraid to present it, uh, particularly when it helps the reader understand what's going on and makes for a convincing story. I thought it was a brilliant book. I remember that book. I read that, I can't remember, it was the first or second time I was in graduate school, <laughs> but I know I read it. It's, it's, it's on my shelf at home. And I remember reading it and having a lot of the same reactions you did, thinking, wow, this is actually interesting. Here I am, I've been dropped into a medieval French peasant's village, and I find it fascinating. And I remember thinking at the time that this almost was a, had a sociological sort of uh, methodology about it, in, in addition to being historical. And uh, it was a fascinating book, and I'm glad you brought it up. I haven't thought about it in a while. Yeah, it's all about these heretics. They yeah. end up getting prosecuted by the Inquisition. But is this the, uh, this is not the Albigensian. Uh, yeah, is it not? I think. It, it may be. That I think it's the Albigensian. It's a small part of this yeah. larger movement in the mountains of France. Because there were areas in southern France that uh, were viewed by uh, the church as taking a dangerous heretical turn. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, the church carried out an internal crusade yeah. To stamp this out. Yeah. And people were tried, convicted, and uh, yeah. executed yeah. for their troubles. Well, that's where most of the sources come from, is the Inquisition. Right. Uh, they collect, they do interviews, and they collect this uh, this information that he then is able to kind of turn on his head a little bit from the perspective, not of the Inquisitors, but from the 
the the the, yeah. the folk in the village. And he's he's literally able to recreate the village. It's so the the, uh, the Vatican's holy office, their archives are now being used against them. Right. Yeah, it's that's pretty uh, very interesting. Yeah. You know that reminds me of um, is it Richard White, The Middle Ground, mm -hmm. where the Jesuit records are mm -hmm. used to recreate that clash, that colonial clash between the French and the Aronians yeah. in the 17th century. Yeah. And again, church records. I mean, that's how we know about the middle ground. Yeah. Is the Jesuit uh, Jesuit records. Yeah. And, and church records here too. It's fascinating what you can do with, with the evidence when you ask different questions. So you you might be looking at the same evidence that, uh, you know, a, a, a 16th century uh, priest in modern-day Canada wrote down, you know, you're reading what they wrote down, but they're approaching this and writing down their observations. They have no idea what question that you and I in the 21st century might ask. And so we, when you ask different questions of the source, you can, you can see things that maybe that priest didn't necessarily intend to show. Right. Oh, now I'm mad because I didn't include Richard White's book on my list. Is that <laughs> well, he's a giant. He, he could put him there. A, that book had a huge impact. The Middle Ground is a really important book. It, it had a big impact. Not only as a historian, but as a teacher. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Uh, I, I could have easily put that on my, book, on my, my list and, and on a different list if we were like the top ten. I think yeah. it would definitely be there. in the past five years um, I originally read Timothy Snyder's book called Bloodlands Europe between Hitler and Stalin and uh, this it takes you into that conquered area between Nazi Germany and, and the Soviet Union um, after Operation Barbarossa begins where the after the German army sweeps through the the SS and the Eisenstadtsgruppen come in and begin to liquidate these people you find uh, the bloodlands are stateless and there's no citizenship there. So he introduces that there, but here he develops it. And the, the full title, uh, Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning by Timothy Snyder. Uh, Black Earth refers to Ukraine. You know, Ukraine is to what south uh, southwest russia or southwest europe as iowa and kansas are to the united states mm -hmm. that's where the food comes from mm -hmm. and it has this incredibly rich uh well black earth mm -hmm. uh hitler wants it um it's at the center of his project um hitler in world war one believes that the british blockade is uh, largely responsible for the german defeat because he sees starving people at home um he is insistent that never again will Germany be faced with uh, starvation. And the answer to that question lies in Ukraine. This, of course, requires conquering the Soviet Union. Uh, so Snyder makes the point that Hitler is a colonialist. 
But he's not going to Africa for colonies. He's going to do it right here in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. He's going to colonize Ukraine, destroy the Soviet Union, turn Eastern Europe into a vast Germanic farm. Um, his emphasis on statelessness, though, really struck me. He, he talks about how the Holocaust takes place in places where there is no law, there's no citizenship, and there are no states to protect you. Um, right, Auschwitz is not in Paris. Right, mm -hmm. right. But you could be a Jew in Paris and taken to Auschwitz. Right. But they're not going to kill you in Paris. Right. Or in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. um, there's a scene in here early, uh, the morning after the Anschluss. Austria doesn't exist anymore. Austria is now part of the Greater Reich. Mm -hmm. uh, immediately, Nazi sympathizers have herded Jews into the streets. They've given them toothbrushes, and they're cleaning the pavement, while the SS officers are picking out apartments and cars and Jewish possessions. And I was struck by, I had, I had heard of that image before, but I hadn't really thought about it in the sense that here these Jewish families had lived in Vienna for decades, and overnight they're no longer citizens of a state at all. And not being citizens of a state, they have no protection. Suddenly they're subjects of the Third Reich. And the dramatic shift suddenly from a comfortable, normal lifestyle to basically a criminal that's being persecuted until their death. I was just, uh, I, was, I was very struck by this analysis of the transition. That, that would lay the groundwork too for the post-war world, the idea that, for example, Jewish people don't have a state for their protection, if you will. That mentality is what's going to lead to the creation of Israel and Yes. You might say the same thing for people in Latvia and uh, Lithuania and uh, Estonia and Poland, where the Einsatzgruppen were so dominant and powerful, that these states have to be created and, and reinforced and maintained. That state of lawlessness cannot be allowed to have a, a corner in this, on this planet. Otherwise, really bad things can happen there. That's, that would set that kind of argument up. Yeah, Snyder makes the point that the SS operate in areas that are stateless, that in a state in a state of statelessness. That that's where they operate, uh, where there is no law. Mm -hmm. uh, just a couple of quotes here from the introduction, because he he draws these nice contrasts that I like, and then he goes into an analysis of Hitler's second book. Now I've got a copy of Mein Kampf around here somewhere, and I've tried to read it. It's difficult. It's turgid and uh, it's not fun. <laughs> the second book I've never seen, have you? No, I didn't even know there was a second one. There is a second book, and it is available, and he brings analysis to it. Hmm. He says, Snyder says, quote, We rightly associate the Holocaust with Nazi ideology, but forget that many of the killers were not Nazis, or even Germans. We think first of German Jews, although almost all the Jews killed in the Holocaust lived beyond Germany. Mm-hmm. We think of concentration camps, though few of the murdered Jews ever saw one. We fault the state, though murder was possible only where state institutions were destroyed. Mm -hmm. So that kind of sets up the broad outline of the book. And then one, one uh, other short quote, and, and I found this fascinating too, because he really does bring a, a close analysis to Hitler's second book. 
He says, quote, an instructive account of the mass murder of the Jews of Europe must be planetary, planetary because Hitler's thought was ecological, treating Jews as a wound of nature. Such a history must be colonial, since Hitler wanted wars of extermination in neighboring lands where Jews lived. It must be international, for Germans and others murdered Jews not in Germany, but in other countries. So these quotes kind of give you a sense of the tone and the and, and the reach of this of this study. Yeah, uh, fascinating. That's fascinating. Fascinating book. Yeah, uh, and I bring this to class too because I've changed my Holocaust lecture, mm. and now I break it into two, uh, basically two parts, uh, whereby we uh, the first part from individual to industrial killing, and we watch that process where the Nazis learn how to do this. After all, it's not easy to kill six million people. And then the second part is selections, where the Jews constantly are undergoing selection to either live a bit longer and work or die today. Uh, and a lot of this stuff is taken directly from, uh, from Snyder's books. Hmm. Well, my fifth book uh, is um, in a different, a different lens than that. It's, um, I, but I have read it fairly recently. In fact, for the book that I wrote, uh, I read this in preparation for that, and it really changed the way that I thought about uh, the past and about memory. And it's a strange book you might think of for a modern Americanist to read because it's about ancient Egypt and ancient Israel and how uh, they remembered their own past. Is this Osman? This is Jan Osman, the yeah. German Egyptologist and historian. And the book is called Cultural Memory and Early Civilization, Writing, Remembrance, and Political Imagination. What Osman does is he advances an argument about memory. So um, at the beginning of the 20th century, Sigmund Freud and others thought that memory was an individual thing, that we only had individual memory. But then this guy named Maurice Halbwachs, who actually died in the, uh, as part of the, the, of the Nazi terror, this intellectual, he said there's this ability for us to remember collectively. Like if I ask you, where were you when the World Trade Center came down, we can all have a memory and that we can share it with each other. We share our memories. In fact, it's a very crucial part of our identity. Um, but that is as far as the argument fairly went, that we just have this collective memory. What Osman does by looking at ancient Egypt and ancient Israel is he's able to argue that beyond just a sharing memories, we actually participate in something that's cultural, a cultural phenomenon, a cultural memory, that we actually have the same memory. We don't share it and, um, because we're not physically connected to each other, but we share memories through culture. So culture becomes crucially important. The movies we watch, the networks we belong to, the imagery that we interpret, going back to Edward Said, the, 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 the racial stereotypes that we in, indulge in are, are, are ways for us to share memories of the past. And those memories can be manipulated and controlled. Um, uh, one thing, just to tie in with your book, that the Nazis were very, very good at is, in essence, creating a false a propaganda, but a false culture and a false memory that they could get people to buy into. Now, um, I use this in a modern American sense, but this kind of idea shapes the way that I view the past, memory, 
and and all of these things and it's been one of the most interesting books that I've ever read although I, I agree like with your earlier work it's not a popular no. read I remember uh, I remember reading Austin in earlier drafts of your book that I read and I remember thinking that he's taking the memory project a step further by looking deep into history yeah and in, into antiquity and I found it interesting too yeah um, and I remember he's uh, he shows up in your um, in the sort of theoretical section of your uh, death at the edges of empire. Yeah. So he has had a uh, profound impact on you. Yeah, and I think about memory now all the time, basically through other people's lenses too. But like, I first go to Osman, and then yes, and then these others. I, I wonder at. So it's been really influential. Um, here's a quote. Uh, I, I I include this in one of my chapters, but just to stay with the quotes, um, he says uh, Osman says. The journey into the unknown or the transgression of a border represents a prime example and model for the process of forgetting. The child forgets his parents, the envoy his message, the prince his noble birth, the soul its heavenly origin, because there is nothing in the new world to bear or support memory. And I would extend that to say this is, in essence, the, the modern American condition. We're in a, in a new world and we have nothing to anchor us. So we oftentimes forget things like the past that we should remember, which is what we talked about in the last podcast. course today uh, many voices who are uh, insist and I guess this has now become a social or cultural memory who insist that was a stolen election or a fraudulent election now you have just as many people who deny that uh, my point is is uh, uh, does the truth matter in a situation like that because the truth presented to uh, if a, if a cultural memory is strong enough to make assertions, no matter how ludicrous they might be, is it susceptible to any sort of logic or any sort of evidence? Well, it is, but I think what the... Let's... I'm not sure what to call all of them. But I guess the, the insurrectionists of January 6th and this whole... The, 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 what is it? They, the, they stop the steel folks, I guess. Is stop the, best the way steel, to yeah. yeah. Um, what they've done is they've actually have used cultural memory. They've interjected conspiracy theories and incorrect things into culture. So the only way to combat that is to inject the more accurate and the more truthful uh, elements into culture. It's at, in the cultural realm, not so much in the political realm. The political realm here is being affected by culture. But if you want to combat it, you have to combat it in the cultural realm. It's a battle of cultural memory, if you will. Um, that's the task that's before us in this age of social media and 24-7 news coverage. 
culture has been transformed into this battleground that you have to participate in if you want to change the politics. Um, and I think there's another way to sort of think about cultural memory. Well, I was trying to think about episodes in 20th century history where we, where we can see a nation undergoing trauma and having um, one set of memories replaced by another. Well, the lost cause of the Confederacy. It's, a false, it's yeah. a false memory. It's a fake memory that becomes so ingrained in the culture of a region here. that it has this long life. It is still it's, here. I promise you, you could travel 10 minutes in any direction from where we are right now and find somebody who would adhere to that, that notion of, of the glory of the Old South yeah. and of the legitimacy of our separation from the, from the Union and the incidental nature of slavery. <laughs> That's because the Confederates can't win the war and they can't win the politics, so they decide to create a cultural memory based on uh, lost cause, false cause narratives that... Um, that can that that people buy into. What what about in the, the second half of the twentieth century when you have the German defeat? Um, well, in forty five, you have the German defeat, and then in the fifties and sixties you have a Germany, a West Germany at least, and East Germany too, that are now uh, ad ad adapting to that defeat and the story we tell about that defeat. Was was it Niemann that wrote about? Uh, German memory. Mm -hmm. um, learning from the Germans. Learning from the Germans, yeah, mm -hmm. that was a good book. I'm thinking of a, a society that undergoes trauma and then has to reformulate memories, social memory. I think of the Soviets or the Russians as well. Uh, the, the Soviet Empire collapsed uh, dramatically and quickly. And how do you adjust? How does a social memory confront that? And how do you turn it? I think this is why survivors of the Holocaust and of the Shoah are so important because they can do what nobody else can do. Their eyewitness accounts can be put into the culture uh, to, to undermine the false culture of Nazi propaganda or of neo-Nazi propaganda effectively. Like it completely undercuts it. That's the kind of cultural sort of movement you need to defeat these these false narratives, and even young. Oftentimes, it's in the youth. Um, young Germans in the '60s began asking their parents, "Hey, Dad, what'd you do in the war?" Uh, it it forced people to have a conversation, and it forced them to admit that the the culture that they had adopted in the in the 30s and 40s was evil and corrupt and problem and and destructive and and only then can you get to move on so this is the basic argument with us in America today we have to acknowledge race and racism it has to be done if you want to move forward because that's the only way you're going to get this cultural memory this this lost cause, false cause, cultural memory defeated is if we acknowledge the past, to keep the past in the present. All right, so last thing. I know we've gone on a while here. Um, a few years ago, I went to a conference here at the, on campus. Uh, a lady uh, from Birmingham who was uh, a friend of the, of the four uh, little African-American girls that were killed in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, she was at the church. She uh, uh, she had a uh, uh, sort of a little part-time job helping the minister with some duties that he had every morning, every Sunday morning. 
So she was there, and she knew the four girls well. They were all close friends. She was their age. And she came here, and she gave a, a talk on this, and she had published a book. Um, and I remember listening to her, and then at the end of the talk, we had a, a little Q&A, and I asked her, I said, did you, did you and your family and your extended family and your network, did y'all discuss this? And she said, no. She said, no. She said it was taboo. She said that um, even in private, we didn't talk about it. And I asked her why. And she said, fear. She said that our narrative, our memories were not uh, acceptable, not permissible. Hmm. And that we kept it to ourselves. She said, this is one of the reasons I wrote the book now is to talk about it because I kept quiet about it for decades. Hmm. I was very struck by that. Yeah, that's powerful. I was very struck. It reminded me of the Poles. After the war, uh, Stalin had slaughtered the uh, Polish officer corps at Katyn, like 22,000 men, shot in the back of the head. So you have uh, relatives, wives, children, parents of a lot of dead Polish officers, and they can't talk about it. Mm. They keep scrapbooks, they keep mementos. But only after the fall of the Soviet Union or the ouster of the Communist Party in uh, Poland uh, are they able to talk about it. So memory is a very powerful thing. Yeah, the same thing happens in the Spanish uh, Civil War. The Franco regime, once it comes to power, it forces everybody to be silent. This is why people who support the Republic, the Republican, uh, the Republicans in Spain, they support the Barcelona uh, football, what we would call the soccer team. Uh, because only in the Barcelona, only in the stadium, the Barcelona plays in. Can you can you get away with uh, shouting Republican uh, mantras? Otherwise, you're going to be punished. And everybody's memory is suppressed. The dead are not allowed to be acknowledged or even marked in their graves. Right. The living are forced to do this. Uh, this is the way that tyrants and oppressors and dictators control uh, the memory is by getting people to be afraid and to be silent yes and it, it you can't do that if you want to live in a democracy you've got to have um, a conversation about it and you have to be it's, it takes a lot of courage sometimes it's really tough um, but we have to talk about the past yeah it takes courage uh, but the the payoff if, if, if national reconciliation is the payoff then it's worth it Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for future episodes of History Matters, a podcast about history, teaching history, and why it matters.